Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Nick Augustine, and I'm your host on this episode of Law Talk Radio, produced by ProServe PR Marketing, home of the ProServe Club. Please show your support and click like button on our Law Talk Radio Facebook page, and you'll find links to a variety of episodes, including uh, upcoming shows and events, and uh, also some of our past shows. Support for both Law and Money Talk Radio shows comes from Chris McCarthy of Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies. The Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Today's show is Enforce Your Judgment with Tamara Pollan. You've spent a lot of time and energy in securing a judgment for your client, but the only thing they're interested in is in getting paid. This is a very important question indeed. After all, countless hours and resources have been expended to get this far, and all you have to show for it is a piece of paper. A very powerful piece of paper, that is, as it turns out. Now, our guest, Tamara M. Pollan, has been practicing uh, in the field of creditors' rights since 2008. She assists her clients through the entire collection process, including the very important post-judgment stage. She graduated cum laude from Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan, and earned her law degree with honors from the John Marshall Law School in 2007. She is also a member of the John Marshall Law Review. Tamara is currently working for the firm of Teller, Levitt, and Silver Trust, located in downtown Chicago. Their website, where you can find more information, is www.tellerlevitt.com. And I'll spell that for you. It's T-E-L-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-T.com. Now, we do uh, welcome callers to our shows. We want to let you know that we are neutral and objective here, of course. You can always call in with a question at 917-889-9732, option 1 to be placed in our caller queue. That telephone number, again, is 917-889-9732, option 1 for the caller queue. Quick disclaimer, uh, this is a general information and entertainment program. Advice shared on our shows does not constitute professional advice, communication with licensed professionals on our show does not give rise to client relationships. ProServe PR Marketing does not necessarily endorse all the opinions expressed by guests. Finally, all guests are our callers rather are confidential and rights to our broadcasts are reserved. Now, here are some of the topics we're going to cover today. Um, in the first 15 minutes of our shows, we like to uh, give a pretty much a 35 or 30,000 foot overview of everything we're going to talk about and then dig in a little deeper during the second, third, and fourth segments as we go for our, uh, our show. So topics we're going to talk about tonight. First, uh, again, we're talking about enforcing judgments and collecting here. Number one, we're going to talk about attorney and staff preparation. We'll talk a little bit about organization, the memorandum of judgment, uh, asset information collection. Next, uh, we'll talk more about filing and procedure, uh, including demands on the judgment debtor and some of the judicial procedures and options available. Then we'll talk about enforcement options. We'll discuss the citation to discover or citation to recover assets, I guess both, uh, and uh, more enforcement lessons and ideas. And then we're going to take some uh, audience questions that I have personally pulled from some of our fans who have listened in and uh, shared with me that they had some uh, questions as well. So we'll try not to throw any uh, curveballs uh, at, at Tamara here tonight. But I want to welcome our guest, Tamara Pollan, and thank her for her time. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. Thanks All right, for that well, wonderful I'm, introduction. 
Oh, well, you know, I, that's why they pay me the big bucks. Like, there you go. <laughs> i got to stop saying that. It's so cliche. Anyways, <laughs> all right, here's the um, – yeah, so so often, uh, you know, and my – you know, people who know me know that my background, I come out of family law, and uh, getting money judgments is something that used to be, uh, you know, you get that right away uh, when you close the case out and, um, you know, prove up the case. And usually people in the old days got paid out of uh, foreclosure escrow. There's money there. It's, you know, it's a different deal now. Uh, so many uh, firms and people have collection activity, and I know that people will get a judgment, and it's like, okay, now you got this judgment. So what? There's so much to do. So um, yeah. let's uh, let's just get a nice uh, overview in our first segment here, and um, don't you lead us through what we're going to talk about today, starting with attorney staff, attorney and staff preparation. Everyone gets involved. Sure. I mean, as you pointed out today, a judgment is not necessarily the end game that uh, maybe it used to be. You know, getting the judgment is kind of half the battle. Actually getting paid on the judgment is the other half, and sometimes even the more important half, uh, certainly uh, something that matters tremendously to your client. Um, As far as um, what you need to do uh, just initially, you've got to verify that you have a good judgment um, you know, there's no point in spending anyone's time or money uh, enforcing a judgment that isn't any good. Uh, so make sure you've got a final uh, and appealable judgment order. Um, next, you're going to want to make sure that you have enough court costs from your client uh, to carry you through the entire post-judgment uh, process. The, there's nothing worse than figuring out where the judgment debtor banks and then having to wait for two weeks for your client to send you a check to issue that citation. Um, you know, send a copy of the judgment to the debtor. That's another um, kind of procedural uh, thing to get out of the way uh, quickly. Uh, the next step uh, in any uh, post-judgment enforcement is to record a memorandum of judgment in the county of residence uh, where your judgment debtor uh, resides in order to effectuate your judgment lien. Um, you should have that information. You serve the, ju- the, the debtor with the underlying lawsuit. So get that memorandum uh, on file to protect your client uh, you know, in as many ways as you can. Uh, the, ne- the next thing you want to do is kind of scour your file uh, that you've you know, accumulated and all the information you've gotten through the pre-litigation uh, and litigation stages for any asset information that may be in there um, from on the judgment debtor? Do you have old checks? Does your client have a credit application uh, from the judgment debtor? Anything that may give you some sort of insight as to what assets this judgment debtor may have that may help you to satisfy this judgment. Um, The next step would be making demand on the debtor. It might seem obvious, um, but uh, one of the first things you should be doing is getting on the phone with that judgment debtor hey, you know, there's a judgment that's been entered against you. What are you going to do about it? Um, Sometimes it's as easy as a phone call. uh, So don't skip that step uh, in going through the uh, enforcement process. Uh, If that doesn't work, though, of course you're going to have to go back to the courthouse, and that's when you need to determine uh, what judicial procedures you're going to use and in what order. There are uh, four different uh, supplementary procedures uh, that are Uh, most widely used, um, the non-wage garnishment, the wage deduction, the citation to discover assets, and then, of course, the levy sale. Uh, The citation to discover assets is the uh, most widely used 
uh, procedure simply because it encompasses just about everything and it can be adapted to almost any situation. So we'll talk about that uh, at length uh, in step six. The um, <clears throat> next step, after you've gone through all of the judicial proceedings, uh, you've served uh, the debtor, you've examined him, you've, you know, you've hit his bank accounts, you've attempted a levy sale, uh, whatever the case may be, at some point you're going to be kind of at the end of the line. and You're going to have to sit back and, and review and see if you've done everything you could. And at that point, you're going to need to put the file away you know, for six months and revisit it in the future to see if anything has changed. Um, and, of course, keep your client advised um, of uh, everything that's going on every step of the way. Then you also cannot forget to renew the judgment. That has to be done every seven years, otherwise you uh, will lose all of that uh, prejudgment effort that you put in if you, if you forget that step. So that's kind of a, a quick overview of um, kind of the post-judgment process. So many things I see that could be um, potential uh, issues. And one of the questions I first want to ask is, um, you know, going back around, how much of the uh, asset collection or, um, you know, going through the files and all the preparation, how much of that is done by attorneys and how much of that is, is done by paralegals? Because in my question I'm going to throw out there, um, and the reason I'm asking some of the questions tonight is because I think there are a lot of attorneys who have taken um, cases like this into their practice areas because there's so much work right now, um, and I'm just imagining maybe some solos out there not sure you know what types of resources they can do, what types of things uh, staff members can do. So um, can you talk a little bit more about that preparation stage, if you could. Sure. I mean, it's all going to depend on the practice and the staff that's available. If you have a volume practice, uh, you know, collection firm, you're going to have a staff of collection uh, collection personnel who are going to be making the collection calls, who are going to be making a lot of the phone calls to the debtors um, and will be doing a lot of the online um, research to gather asset information. Um, if you don't have that staff uh, at your disposal, certainly you can do that on your own as an attorney. Um, it's, you know, maybe not most effective use of your time, but uh, certainly something you can do. There are several online resources that you can use. Lexis has one. Uh, there's Accurant uh, that you can use to come up with um, UCC filings or real estate ownership, uh, other judgments that may be out there against the defendant. Um, all of those things uh, can be done in your own office. Um, if you've got a particularly slippery debtor, uh, you may need to hire a private investigator, um, and there are, uh, of course, uh, many of them out there uh, that would be happy to help you out with that. But most of it can be handled uh, in-house, especially if, if you've got the staff uh, to support that. One of the questions that pops in my head is getting paid on these, um, and if you have a volume practice, um, I, and I, I have no idea what the answer to this is, Going to be so. I'm excited to know. Um, are these are, are the law firms getting paid uh, percentages, or is it flat fee, or can it be hourly, or are there statutory provisions on that? There are no statutory provisions. Uh, it's really whatever the arrangement is with the client. Uh, most collection uh, law firms will take cases on a contingent basis. 
uh, which uh, in which case they would recover a percentage of whatever is ultimately recovered on the lawsuit or the the judgment. Uh, in some situations, they may ask for you know a small non-contingent uh, retainer, um, but again, it all depends on the particular case and the particular law firm. Uh, most of the attorneys that handle just kind of one-offs are more likely to charge hourly, which um, you know can be a big risk uh, for the client uh, to be paying hourly uh, to collect on a judgment where at the end of the day they might get nothing and yet have paid all these attorney's fees. So that's one of the uh, definite advantages of use, using a firm that specializes in collection work. Certainly. Now, we talked a little bit about um, after we're organized and go through and uh, find – actually, yeah, before Memorandum of Judgment, can you tell us a little more about some just general tips on um, going through the files and some uh, you know, some places to go and look? Because here's the thing. If, if it's a situation where you handle the underlying case and you know the mm-hmm. person, you're the law firm that you owes know, money to, that's one thing. Um, if it's just a, you know, a name and an address off the street – um, you know, it might be difficult, um, you know, so how do you help, how would you help your client? Um, I'm envisioning your client comes to you and says, I have, you know, these list of uh, judgment debtors. Um, you know, what types of things do you uh, tell them? What are some good pointers in uh, trying to trace assets and where the uh, find where the money is? Okay, well, in that situation, some of the most valuable information is probably going to come off of your client's credit application, that uh, the defendant or the now judgment debtor uh, submitted before the parties uh, started doing business. Most credit applications are going to contain information on both the business and the individual uh, principles. So you're going to get address information. You're going to get the home address as well. A lot of times they'll have phone numbers on there. Whether they're still working or not, obviously, is yet to be determined. Uh, you'll likely also get a social security number, which is going to help on any with any online uh, search that you do. And then you're also going to find out where they bank, because most credit applications require that you submit banking information, uh, and that is some of the most valuable information that you can have uh, when trying to enforce a judgment. Very so you're definitely going to want to yeah. ask your client for that. Um. Additionally, now, now here's another thing that pops up in my head, um, and I like to ask questions just as I spot issues. And one yeah. of them is uh, um, Fair Debt Credit, Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Uh, does all of it extend to you know what parts do you have to worry about, what parts do you not have to worry about, and is there a quick resource? Well, the um, <clears throat> Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the FDCPA, only applies to debt collectors. Uh, so if you are handling just a one-off case, you probably will not need to worry about that. Uh, it's really if it just uh, is a large portion of your your business. And it only applies to consumers. As the, um, you know, so if you're doing uh, collection work only based on consumers, then you're going to have to worry about it. If you're doing commercial collection work, uh, you're likely not going to have to worry about the FDCPA. And uh, as far as a resource, the ICLs, um are always um, my first place uh, to start whenever I have a question. Ickles are great for those of you that for those of you outside the uh, Illinois area. That is uh, the Illinois Institute of Continuing Legal Education. They have wonderful binders, and um, it's really easy to stop by any law library and kind of plow through A, B, C, D through your uh, through your cases. So. Um, 
we're going to talk a little bit more about some preparation. We're going to take our first break, and I'm going to tell our uh, listeners out there about an upcoming second session of the Get More Clients, Grow Your Practice series, taking place on Wednesday, February 22nd at 7 o'clock Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. Um, the topic is practicing the referral mindset. Our friend Jim Thompson, who uh, delivered all sorts of great information on creating the marketing plan in our first call uh, in the end of January, is going to be back, and he's taking the reins again for most of the uh, the second series here on the Get Clients Now, Grow Your Practice series. More information can be found on ProServePR.com under the Workshops tab on the website. Um, there are links there to the uh, syllabus as we update those. The first uh, three are free. We're being, being off them for free, and then they're $25 per uh, per course per session afterwards. Very simple and easy for people to participate. On the website, uh, there will be, uh, in advance of the uh, February 22nd uh, session, the call-in number and access code, and as well, we have decided to, instead of do the full interactive webinar, just put a PowerPoint um, in a PDF on the website, too, so people can just grab that and uh, print it or go along on their screen. Uh, really trying to do everything we can on our end to make this easy for you. And one of the things that we found interesting, folks, is that uh, a lot of our participants were senior attorneys uh, as well as some younger attorneys. So we were uh, pleased by the number of people who, with uh, 20 years under their belt who uh, called in because they want to know, you know, what are some of the new things that people are talking about? Um, Jim Thompson is certainly an individual in the know when it comes to referral marketing and such. He's good friends and colleagues with some of the, the nation's top uh, professionals in these areas. So, again, it's going to be a great uh, program. Of course, uh, those who join the ProServe Club, there's another tab for that on ProServePR.com. The ProServe Club members are going to get all of these sessions for free, and uh, our pre-sale uh, amount uh, that we're selling memberships for is $30 a month. So if these uh, these are $25, uh, it makes sense. So there's all sorts of information uh, located on the website with more that ProServe uh, Club launches officially February 15th. So that's a subscription-based uh, resource for attorneys, professionals, and other people who are engaging in some DIY marketing and want some uh, tips and tricks on how to do a lot of things themselves. Of course, we always offer all the services um, ourselves um, individually and separately. But again, so uh, the second session of Get Clients, Get More Clients, Grow Your Practice, February 22nd, 7 p.m. Central, 5 p.m. Pacific. If you need more information, you can get in touch with me, Nick Augustine, at 312-505-2604 or from Orange County, California, 949-478-4610. Also, ProServePR.com for more information. Back to our program now with Tamara. Paulin, we were talking about uh, attorney staff and preparation in our beginning segment. We talked a little about organization and finding the assets, getting our ducks in a row, and um, the next step is our memorandum of judgment. You have to record the memorandum of judgment. So, Tamara, what do we need to know? Uh, well, Nick, first, like I mentioned um, earlier, make sure you've got a valid judgment. Uh, in order to be enforceable, the judgment has to be final. Uh, which means that it either has to dis it has to dispose of all matters or all counts and all parties. If it does not dispose of all matters and all parties, uh, the order will need to include Supreme Court 304A language, uh, which states that there is no just reason for delaying either enforcement or appeal or both. 
these are words of art, and you should uh, certainly include them in any judgment order that does not dispose of all matters or all parties. Uh, without those words, uh, and if you've got st still some claims or some parties lingering out there, you cannot enforce that judgment. Um, so make sure you've got uh, your final judgment. Uh, if it's not final, you can go back into court after the judgment has been entered and ask for that 304A finding. Or if you find that you've got some parties that are non-essential, for example, a defunct corporation and your primary target is the uh, principal guarantor, you might consider dismissing uh, the corporation without prejudice. Uh, whatever it is, you've got to have a final judgment order. Um, Another uh, thing to keep in mind is to have the judge sign a memorandum of judgment at the time that the judgment order is entered. This will save you uh, a step and a few bucks when you go to record the memorandum. Um, when you record the memorandum, uh, you should know where the data resides, and that's going to determine the county where you're going to record it. You're going to take either your signed memorandum from the judge uh, along with a check for the recording fee, uh, which in Cook County is $40, you take that to the Recorder of Deeds office and they will put, get that on file for you. If you did not get a memorandum signed by the judge, you'll have to make a stop at the uh, clerk's office first to get a certified copy of the judgment. Uh, in Cook County, they charge $9 for that. Uh, and Then you've got your memorandum uh, recorded. And A big question might be why you want to go through that effort. And uh, you want to go through that effort because it's going to give your client a lien on any real property that the debtor may own in that county. Um, you can foreclose on that lien the same way that you can foreclose on a mortgage. Uh, for a $5,000 judgment, you're probably not going to go through foreclosure proceedings. Uh, but keep in mind that that judgment debtor cannot sell or refinance the property uh, without paying off your client first. Uh, so that's a very important uh, up uh, to keep in mind when you're enforcing judgments. And then, of course, you have to uh, make sure to revive uh, every seven years or your uh, lien will expire. Now, Tamara, without a memorandum of judgment, are you dead in the water on some of these things? And can you blow the uh, limitations time in getting a memorandum of judgment? Does it need to be 30 days from judgment? or? It does not need to be within 30 days, and uh, you know you can still proceed with any other post-judgment enforcement measures, even if you do not record a memorandum of judgment. But you do forego that judgment lien on real property uh, if you do not file the memorandum. So if you so, know for a sorry. so it's a, so the automatic so the automatic lien is is what your is the real benefit of it. Uh, the lien on the real real estate, yes. Right, right, okay. Right, and if um, you know if you know for a fact that your debtor does not own any real estate, you may want to skip that step. It might not be worth your client's, you know, forty, fifty bucks to record it if you know that he has no real estate. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's a decision that you'd have to make with your client, obviously. All right, and then um, just going through our steps and procedures. So we've got our memorandum of judgment recorded. Um, we have our asset information. Now it's time to talk about filing and procedure. So uh, you mentioned in the show earlier, Tamara, that a demand on the judgment debtor is appropriate. Um, is that similar? What most people, if you know anyone who's drafted a basic settlement letter before, a similar language and similar letter? Yeah, I mean, you include a copy of the judgment order. You notify the judgment debtor that the judgment has been entered and that he should contact your office uh, to work out uh, payment 
of the judgment. Now, when you most most clients will have a is there a pretty set schedule or is there uh, something I don't know uh, custom and practice when it comes to um, amounts that will that people will you know be able to collect or work out plans on some of these once they have a judgment there. What's a good rule of thumb or what have you experienced? Just random well, question. Yeah, no, it's all going to depend on your debtor, uh, the amount of the judgment, uh, whether it's uh, commercial or consumer debt, and um, what type of business uh, is involved. You know, if it's someone in the construction industry, of course we all know that they've been very hard hit uh, recently, so this, any settlement amount uh, is going to have to be reduced in light of uh, the wider economy. Um, you know, so it's all kind of on a case-by-case basis given the debtor's financial situation and, again, the amount of the judgment. Right. If it's a small judgment, it might not be a problem for it, – it'll be a problem, but it won't be as big of a problem, I guess, for the judgment debtor to come up with $2,000 as opposed to $200,000. Now, when you're looking at some of the um, collection effort, well, you know, we're still talking about our um, demand letter. What's a, what's a, a reasonable time to wait? Because I'm just um, I <laughs> just imagining the different things that people will do to try to stall you. Um, you have any wisdom on that? Yes. Um, you know, we typically send out – I would recommend sending the judgment order out – uh, and I would include a time frame in the letter. That way, you know, everyone's on the same page. You know, contact my office within seven days or within 14 days. Uh, if you don't hear from them by then, you know, then you probably want to make a phone call uh, because the phone call is easy and it's cheap and, you know, you never know what's going to happen. Um, but if they keep blowing you off or you can't get through to anyone or they keep uh, breaking promises, missing deadlines, that's when you know you've got someone you really can't trust and you've got to, you know, proceed with other other measures. Now, when if if you have an agreement with someone, do you have any recommendations from your experience in practice? What this, uh, uh, you know, as so far as securing payment, because I suppose that someone telling me they're going to put a check in the mail or or whatnot is probably as good as nothing. Well, it all depends. I mean, we're talking today about post judgment uh, enforcement, so uh, you know, when you're in the post judgment uh, realm, it's very different than in pre judgment. Uh, something, uh, a settlement pre-judgment, you know, you've always got that threat of a judgment uh, to hang over the defendant uh, in order to get those payments in the door. Um, When you're in a post-judgment setting, the game kind of changes a little bit. Um, But, you know, uh, an important thing to remind the debtor is that you can always bring them back into court if they break their promises. You know, and, and most most defendants, most people, in fact, uh, do not want to go to court. So, you know, if that payment doesn't show up, you know, remind them that you're going to bring them back into court. But it's going to cost them more money, too. Right, because right, they're going right, to be paying right. the additional court costs uh, that are associated with that. You know, their judgments accrue interest at 9%. So mm-hmm. those are all things to remind them of. Um, all right, so that, now now we've decided we either have someone who's going to pay or someone's not going to pay. Uh, we've made our, our sound judgment as a good attorney. Now it's time to decide sometimes to go to court. So what should we know about um, what we're filing, you know, what we can expect, um, docketing, calendars, all that good stuff? Mm-hmm. Well, you've got to be familiar with the different uh, procedures that are available to you. And then based on the asset information that you either have or don't have, uh, you're going to 
pick and choose between the options uh, based on that. The first uh, remedy is the non-wage garnishment. The non-wage garnishment uh, is statutory creation. Uh, it allows the creditor to stand in the debtor's shoes and recover the debtor's assets that are in the hands of others or to recover indebtedness that is uh, owed to the debtor by others. Um, there are limitations on this, and that's why it is not very widely used. It only um, pertains to property of a legal nature, does not include uh, that property of an equitable nature, for example, an equitable estate. Um, the indebtedness uh, must be presently due and owing. The uh, non-wage garnishment does not uh, cover, does not lien any property that comes into that third party's hands after the uh, garnishment is served. Uh, it also does not permit the creditor to gather information or uh, go on a fishing expedition, um, and it cannot be converted into a citation proceeding at a later date. Uh, as I mentioned, the garnishment does create a lien, but it's only the assets that are currently being held uh, by the garnishee, not anything that comes into their possession at a later date. That is one of the biggest uh, disadvantages of the non-wage garnishment. Uh, the other... Uh, remedy that you might use is the wage deduction, which is an outgrowth of the garnishment procedure, uh, but it actually uh, covers uh, future assets that come into the third party's hands. So the result of a successful wage deduction, of course, would be a wage deduction order, which instructs the judgment debtor's employer to turn over a certain amount of the debtor's earnings to the creditor. Uh, you can, uh, pursuant to the statute, you can get 15% of the debtor's gross wages or uh, the amount by which disposable earnings for a week exceeds 45 times the federal minimum hourly wage. Uh, the court, uh, an interesting thing to keep in mind, is that the court does not have the authority uh, to enter an order for less than the statutory amount. Um, pension and retirement payments are excluded. Uh, Spouse and child support payments take priority, and uh, wage deduction orders can be stacked. So if an employer gets hit with two or three of them, they're going to uh, pay off the first one received first before making any payments on the subsequent uh, deduction orders. And every 90 days, the creditor uh, needs to send notice to the employer with the current judgment balance. Um, the citation to discover assets, which we'll cover uh, more in, in just a minute, is the most uh, widely used enforcement mechanism today, and that's because uh, it, is, uh, it covers just about everything that the wage deduction and the garnishment does, uh, and it uh, goes even beyond that. Then the other option is the levy sale. Uh, the levy sale uh, authorizes the sheriff to sell the debtor's personal property to satisfy the judgment. In a levy sale, the sheriff is ordered by the court to seize and sell uh, the debtor's property, and he will then account for the proceeds to the creditor. Uh, again, for this, you'll need a copy, a certified copy of the judgment. The uh, creditor will also have to post an indemnity bond, which is typically twice the amount of the judgment uh, these are given to the sheriff's office in the county where the property is located. And, of course, you're going to have to pay the sheriff uh, for their time. Um, another thing to keep in mind is the creditor should uh, kind of alert the sheriff, give him a general idea of what he should be looking for 
what the creditor wants him to see. You know, if it's uh, a hair salon, does the creditor want the sheriff to take, you know, the styling, you know, the chairs or the scissors or the hairbrushes, you know, the cash register? What exactly is the creditor uh, looking to have, have seized and sold? Um, once the uh, sheriff is given the uh, judgment and the indemnity bond, he will then uh, go out to the judgment debtor's place of business and complete an inventory. Uh, he should be tagging all of the inventory and instructing the debtor that he is not to sell that inventory. Um, at the sale, it is a public sale, so anyone can bid. This includes the creditor who can bid its judgment. Everyone else has to come with cash. And after the share, after the sale, excuse me, the sheriff will report the results uh, on his return of service. If the debtor has property in another county, you can register your judgment in that county, and the sheriff of that county can conduct the levy sale. Uh, important thing to keep in mind is that, uh, at least with 95% of levy sales, the goal is not actually to have the sale go through. Uh, if, this, if the judgment debtor allows the sale to proceed, it's probably because there's no equity in the assets that the sheriff's about to seize. And then at the end of the day, uh, the creditor is stuck paying the sheriff to conduct the sale, and they're stuck with a bunch of worthless assets. Uh, the other option, if the judgment debtor does not protest to the sale, uh, is that he's going to be filing for bankruptcy very shortly. Uh, that's the only other real reason that you're not going to have a, a debtor uh, come up with some funds to either pay off the, the judgment or at least to settle the judgment. Uh, ultimately, the levy sale is going to force the debtor to pay or it's going to force them out of business. Uh, you so know, <laughs> I'm seeing so many issues with uh, what I want to take. To, if someone called and said, can you levy and get this person? I think a lot of people would, um, you know, just going through the list of traps, not really mm -hmm. traps, but, uh, you know, ways that you can fall short. Uh, it seems like it's really, you really have to, it seems like the citation is maybe a better thing. Let's talk a little bit more about these. Um, I'm going to pause for a second break, but first, Tamara, could you tell for the attorneys out there listening here in Illinois, particularly, if they have a case and they need collection help um, and they need someone who knows the traps and knows not to fall in, how can they get a hold of you and your law firm? Again, if you could give us some contact information. Absolutely. Uh, again, it's Tamara Pollen and the law firm is Teller, Levitt, and Silver Trust. Uh, I can give you uh, the website, which Nick provided earlier, was www.tellerlevitt.com. Uh, my direct line is 312-948-4907. And uh, if you want to shoot me an email, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to respond. And that is uh, tpaulin at tellerlevitt.com. T as in Tom, P as in Paul, A-U-L-U-N as in Nancy, at tellerlevitt.com. Perfect. Okay, we're going to pause for an event message from, um, uh, from a client and sponsor, and uh, then we'll be right back and talk a little bit more uh, in rehash because some, some of your uh, heads may be spinning from the list of the garnishments, deductions, citations, and levy and different options. So um, I want to tell you about uh, something coming up. Uh, it's a very, this is a very limited fundraising reception presented by D. Tommaso Lubin in Chicago and Oak Brook Terrace. And this is a fundraising reception honoring Judge Bob Gibson, Circuit Court Judge. Now, this is going to be taking place Thursday, February 16th, 
from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. It's going to be at, and I apologize if I kill the name on this, uh, Cortino, Q-R-A-T-I-N-O, I'm sorry, that was really easy, Cortino Restaurant, located at 626 North State Street in Chicago. It is $500 per person, and the evening promises unlimited cocktails and appetizers, amazing uh, amazing dinners and desserts, this is the the flyer says I'm not sure what that word is D E G U S T A T I O N um the digestion maybe I don't know but uh anyways uh tickets are going to be held at the door and uh, RSVP for more information to uh here's the email L T R I C O C I so L Tricochi L T R I C O C I at ditomasola.com which is D I T O M M A S a O L A W dot com. I'm sorry. It's D D Tomaso Law dot com. Uh maybe it's easier with a phone number. Six three oh three 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 zero 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 extension fourteen for uh Mr. Coach. For more information on this Judge Bob Gibson Circuit Court Judge uh fundraiser, you can always also search for uh D Tomaso Lubin uh, on Google and find their website, which is D dot com. D Tomaso Lubin are experts in corporate litigation and also serve individuals and small business in uh, cases ranging from class action and consumer fraud to uh, small closely family-held businesses uh, and all sorts of other uh, things. Um, Vince DiTomaso and Peter Lubin are are pretty well-known in the Chicagoland area, well-respected attorneys, and I'm so proud to be able to tell you about this limited fundraising uh, reception. I'm sure that anyone who is anyone who wants to go to this will meet all sorts of great people um, good referrals for other cases and practice areas. It's a good idea, uh, obviously, to support uh, your different candidates and also to uh, meet other people in the community because so many of us don't have time to say hello. And uh, one thing that I will say, um, when you find network or, uh, events like this, uh, you know, fundraisers, you may get a different crop of people than you get at uh, some of the common networking events because, in my experience, a lot of the people – who are you're getting the same people over and over at networking events so um I really uh, recommend this you can also get more information about this uh from uh, the folks at Tomaso Lube and their telephone number again 630-333-0000 extension 14 for more information um this uh, message is authorized by citizens for Judge Bob Gibson contributions or gifts to the organization are not deductible as charitable contributions for federal or state income tax Purposes. All right, now back to our show. Um, I want to let you know also I've got a Nancy Minard uh, message that's going to be coming out to people shortly uh, by a mass email. She has another one of her wonderful leaded LTD series. There are changes in the law that family law attorneys need to know. Nancy has the information and is putting together a wonderful uh, presentation in March, so I'll be uh, telling you more about that in future shows. So, uh, back to our show with Tamara Pollan, um, and we are talking all about uh, different judicial procedures. Um, Again, Tamara Pollan is our guest tonight from Teller, Levin, and Silver Trust in downtown Chicago. Uh, The firm is uh, correct. It celebrates the uh, Centennial, 100-year-old firm. Uh, 91. 91, 91 okay. Years. Yep, 91, well, you got a few yep. years left. Well, can, yep. I'll mark it on the calendar to say congratulations at the 100-year <laughs> mark. Not go. many firms left uh, anymore who have uh, survived the, um, you know, so many people reorganize so often. It's uh, it's nice to find some firm that's been around. I was really uh, surprised when I when I saw that. What a neat thing. 
Yep, it is. And uh, we've done creditors' rights since its inception. So. Wow. Well, I'm sure that um, uh, so much, I'm sure uh, the, member, the members at your firm could um, and have spoken on this extensively. So um, I, will, I will say that uh, your firm and your group there are authorities on the subject matter. So <laughs> now, for those of us whose heads are spinning a little with, can you, we, we, we talked about non-wage garnishments, wage deductions, citations to discover assets, and property levies. Can you uh, go through again for anyone who is taking notes so they can fill in just uh, key points and takeaways on those four? Sure. The non-wage garnishment uh, only applies to legal property, and it only applies to uh, property that is presently in the hands of the uh, garnishee. It does not cover assets that are acquired after service of the garnishment. Uh, That's one of the major limitations there. The wage deduction is served on an employer, uh, which is broadly defined, uh, and allows a wage deduction order to be entered, uh, which uh, instructs the employer to turn over a certain portion of the wages to the judgment creditor. Um, And multiple wage deduction orders will be stacked, so uh, time is of the essence uh, with those and you have to send out every 90 days a notice to the employer with the current judgment balance. The levy sale is an expensive uh, and a somewhat cumbersome process that is not as widely used anymore uh, simply because most judgment debtors do not have property, uh, quite frankly, that's worth the process. Uh, But if you do conduct a levy sale, what you're essentially doing is you're having the sheriff go in Uh, lock down the inventory, and then conduct a public sale of those assets. Um, You have to pay the sheriff to do that, so that's a a consideration to keep in mind. And your client is also going to have to uh, place an indemnity bond of typically twice the judgment amount. Um, The ultimate goal of a levy sale, in my opinion, is not to go through with the sale, but it's to uh, get a decent uh, settlement offer or payoff from the debtor. And then the citation is uh, certainly today the predominant uh, enforcement mechanism that's used. Uh, That's statutory as well, and you can find the details uh, in Section 5.2-1402. And um, as I mentioned earlier, it can be used in the same manner as the wage deduction and can also be used to enter any order that could be entered in a garnishment proceeding. It's also not limited by the types of assets it can reach, so it kind of does it all. Uh, It creates a continuing lien on all the personal property. It expires six months after it is served unless it's extended, so keep that in mind if you're continuing the matter in court uh, for document production or or whatever the case may be. Don't let that expire. Uh, The citation to discover assets Uh, provides a mechanism for the creditor to essentially conduct asset discovery. Uh, In essence, it allows a fishing expedition. Uh, It's liberally construed by the courts. Uh, You can ask the client any question uh, that uh, has to do with his assets, and you can even go a step further and uh, require him to provide documentary proof of those answers. Uh, So it's a very powerful tool. The citation requires that the respondent appear personally Uh, On the return date, the citation can be returnable either in court or in the attorney's office. If you have any reason at all to distrust uh, the debtor uh, who you've just served with a citation, uh, I would 
strongly advise that you set up the citation exam uh, in your office and have a court reporter present. Um, it is just a good practice to have him on record. So if you, down the line, find that anything he told you uh, was not so, you have uh, the record and you're covered. Uh, the citation also allows the creditor to obtain contempt orders for noncompliance. And with regard to third parties, uh, the court will even enter a conditional judgment uh, for noncompliance. Under a citation, the court can enter uh, a sale of assets or a turnover order. Uh, the citation can be served on anyone that the debtor uh, believes, I'm sorry, anyone uh, including the debtor or another uh, individual or entity that the judgment creditor believes is holding assets of the debtor, for example, a bank uh, or a major client, if, if they may have uh, amounts outstanding uh, that are due to the judgment debtor. The citation is, uh, has to be served five days before the return date, uh, with third-party citations, those are the ones served on uh, banks or customers of the debtor, uh, typically the, the uh, citation respondent will not show up in court. Uh, they'll, they'll typically just submit an answer uh, identifying any funds that they hold that are the debtors, and they'll send that to the creditor's attorney. And then the creditor's attorney will go into court with that information and, and do what needs to be done. Uh, if necessary, though, the third-party respondent certainly can be compelled to appear in court. Um, the citation uh, needs to include a certification by the attorney of the balance due, the judgment date, the name of the court, and the case number. You also have to include uh, the statutory cautionary language uh, in the citation notice. And that language uh, indicates that failure to appear uh, may cause the respondent to be arrested and imprisoned. And that language, again, is, is found in the statute and should be copied verbatim on the citation notice. Uh, and you should also note that imprisonment does happen. Uh, these judgment debtors or the third-party respondents, if they do not comply, uh, the court will issue a writ, uh, a body attachment, and the judgment debtor will be arrested. Uh, how often that happens is going to depend on the county that you're in and the judge that you're in front of. But if the citation is served and the respondent does not appear, uh, the next step for the court is to issue a rule to show cause. Uh, as to why the respondent did not appear on the citation return date. The rule has to be personally served then on the respondent, uh, and if he fails to appear on the return date for the rule, a writ of body attachment will be issued with a cash bond. So it is definitely a wake-up call uh, for any uh, judgment debtor or citation respondent. Wow, that's. Um, I was just. You answered my question. I was just going to say, what if there someone you uh, you know, doesn't comply? Because I know, like child yeah. support, you know, there's a body attachment, and um, I, I've heard uh, many people say to the to a client, "Okay, fine. You want to go to jail? Go to jail. It's fine." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, it happens, folks. Uh, um, all right. Now I'm going to I'm going to uh, just you know pause for two seconds. I appreciate that um, recitation. I, I, I think everyone's taking good notes. If not, they can click back on their browser and listen uh, after we're done here. Um, I'm going to quickly tell you again a reminder to our audience, uh, and then we're going to come back with some questions. Um, a just general reminder that the uh, next. 
Get More Clients, Grow Your Practice uh, series comes on February 22nd. That's a Wednesday. Again, those are always going to be the fourth Wednesday of the month at 7 p.m. Central, uh, 5 p.m. Pacific. More information at ProServePR.com, P-R-O-S-E-R-V-E-P-R.com. Under the Workshops tab, also check out the uh, new Developing and To Be Launched Live uh, ProServe Club. And uh, part of the cool thing about the ProServe Club is that members uh, and of course, anyone who currently is on our list is going to get three free months um, of uh, ProServe Club membership. And one of the things that's really neat about it is we're going to do members-only meetup and networking events because what we are finding is that people who are jumping in on our calls um, are looking to meet other people and other lawyers and uh, you know send referrals back and forth, and um, you'll, you'll find this. People who are active in uh, in learning different marketing and PR and referral generation activities are also the people who are active in actually making those referrals, um, so there's some consistency there. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, so we wanted to combine a spot where you know attorneys can find all their DIY resources to get all the marketing PR work done themselves and um, you know do some meetups and events and some exclusive um, things. So that's how we're making it fun. All right. Now back to uh, our talk with Tamara Pollan. And we're talking um, – she's from Teller, Levin, and Silver Trust. We've been talking all hour about judgment uh, enforcement and collection. I'm going to read you these questions um, so you can uh, note any ones that you want to skip. But um, our questions are, I've got six of them. Number one, what about property that's out of state? Um, number two, corporate formation issues, uh, incorporation uh, indivi- you know, versus LLC with members. Um, three, asset search and investigation. We kind of covered that a little already. Uh, four, structure of ownership of assets that kind of ties in with um, some of the um, asset and the formation issues, maybe. Um, how attorneys got get paid, we covered that a little bit more. Um, and then statute of limitations on the ju- on the judgment, we talked about that a little bit. Why don't we, you know, how about, well, let's address this property out of state uh, question because, you know, here in, in Chicago, it's not uncommon for people to have vacation homes and property in our neighboring Wisconsin, Michigan, uh, Indiana. Um, so that's a common thing. Um, so what are some thoughts there? Well, if you've got a judgment debtor with uh, real estate out of state, what you're going to need to do is uh, register that judgment in the state where the real estate is located. Um, And you will have to, uh, unless you have a dual license, you'll need to find a local attorney who can do that for you and then proceed with uh, that state's uh, enforcement uh, mechanisms uh, because the Illinois courts, um, unfortunately, are not going to be able to reach that property and you're going to have to use that state's uh, court system and their post-judgment measures. Is it a frequent occurrence that you get calls from other uh, firms who do this for, uh, you know, do the same type of work but maybe don't have as many relationships? Or um, has your firm worked to build relationships with a lot of these uh, other neighboring states? And what are some other states that uh, this commonly occurs with? Sure, um, absolutely. Uh, You know, we get a lot of work from other attorneys out of state who are pursuing uh, judgment debtors who own property in Illinois. So then what we will do is we will register the judgment that that out-of-state attorney has uh, acquired in that state, 
and uh, proceed against the property here in Illinois as local counsel. Of course, then when we have a judgment debtor uh, in the same situation with property out of state, we will uh, work with a local attorney uh, to enforce the judgment against that uh, foreign property. And that's another uh, nice thing about the uh, collection world, I guess I'll call it, is that uh, collection firms do have a network of other attorneys uh, throughout the country that they uh, work with uh, so that kind of the, the state boundaries are, are not actually a boundary and that, you know, one one office can handle, you know, the, the enforcement uh, no matter where the property is located. So you could have then, because I'm assuming that you probably would have, um, you know, a collection of cases from one client, you know, who has one is going to have, you know, a lot more than one. Likely, possibly, right? That they're going to have more than one. That they're going to have, um, let's say it's a credit card company and they have mm-hmm. people all over the country. So, um, so then you would just, you know, basically work with those other people. Absolutely. We would be the point of contact, and we would oversee all of the uh, files uh, that are, you know, in other states with other attorneys. Mm-hmm. Um, some of these other questions, anything else that we didn't uh, cover? Oh, yeah, corporate versus corporate and formation issues. What should people know uh, if they have a judgment debtor that is a corporation versus an LLC where we have members? Well, the the biggest uh, difference there is um, how you're going to serve uh, and who you're going to serve uh, with the citations. Um, and with the corporation, you're probably going to want to start with the registered agent uh, who is going to be listed on the Secretary of State's website. And with the LLC, you're likely going to serve one of the members who, again, are also listed on the Secretary of State's website. So, okay. Um are, are there any other other issue? I mean, what if okay, how about this? Um I just I'm trying to imagine what this person other, you know, some other questions they might have had. Um let's say you have you're doing a collection and you are doing a wage deduction, but the person is an independent contractor and not an employee. Uh, you're doing a wage deduction, and you've served it on the... Yeah, you believe that the, the person the is an employee. employee. Uh, you find the mm-hmm. employer, and employer says this person's independent contractor. And then what? That's going to depend on uh, the judge, ultimately. The uh, statute is very broadly interpreted with regards to how an employer is defined. And in that situation, it is likely that uh, an employer-employee situation or relationship would be found by the court. Oh, so they can impute it. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's interesting. I did not know that before. Um, and what about the structure of ownership of assets? How common is it that you'll find something that's held jointly uh, by different people and you're having a rough time collecting? What are some tips on that? Um, well, I mean, the... the I guess the biggest roadblock there is when you have uh, a married couple and they own, um, you know, property together. And unfortunately, there's not a whole lot you can do uh, if they hold that uh, jointly. Um, the best you can hope for, really, in that situation, is to uh, apply some pressure and to hope uh, to get some sort of settlement offer. 
because you know if only one spouse is liable um, on that obligation, you know you you can't uh, you can't foreclose on that home mm-hmm. property. Uh, there are, I'm sure, you know, I, as we've talked about this, I could just see someone um, uh, making a list of all the ways to uh, be that slimy judgment debtor and uh, avoid avoid all these. Are there just some people out there who uh, people just give up on? Or <laughs> what do you do if you have someone, you know, uh, does your firm, will you sh- uh, shoot some of these cases off? Uh, to someone else, or or how does that happen? Or um, it just you know, you talked about um, you know sometimes you have to put the file away, put the file aside for six months, um, and then come back. Um, you know, I suppose it's just a, a cost benefit at that point, right? Or right, exactly. Um, you know, and of course you are going to run into uh, the judgment debtor who wants to play games, and in those situations, I I tend to think of the court as kind of my best friend because. Uh, the judges see this every day. Um, you know, at least in Cook County, the judges who are in the post-judgment courtrooms, all they do is post-judgment. Uh, so they, this is nothing new to them, the, the judgment debtor that wants to play games or, or hide assets. Uh, so if you find something that doesn't check out, uh, your best bet is to go in front of the judge and, um, you know, bring it to his attention and, uh, more likely than not, he's going to be on your side, and he's going to help you out with that. All right. Um, we have a few minutes left. Anything yeah. else that you wanted to remind us of um, with the citation? How about this? Citation to discover versus citation to recover assets. What's the difference on that? I am unaware of a citation to recover assets. Okay. Here is why. There's, this mm-hmm. happened. I was actually in court with someone in Cook County, and um, the judge who will remain nameless asked the individual to file a citation to recover the assets, and we were thinking, isn't he mean citation to discover assets? Um, and I, so I wasn't sure if you know what that if that was something that was new <laughs> or that you know some some of us missed the memo on that. Yeah, I mean the the statutory remedy is uh this it's a it's a citation to discover assets. It, it allows you to uh recover assets under that uh, arm, you know, any assets that you discover uh that are not exempt can be uh subject to a turnover order uh, so you can recover them. Hmm. Um, and then um and and again when and then you again uh to to, to recap um some of the higher, some of the finer points. Valid judgment, uh, just because we're running out of time here. Yeah. So uh, I just wanted to um, give you the opportunity to, again, um, you know, people who are going to, people who get a phone call that, um, you know, anyone listening, that phone call could come tomorrow. Um, and it's so often that that happens like that. We listen to something, we learn something, and then uh, all of a sudden that person calls. So um, what things, if you get a call and you're a lawyer, what types of things should you uh, try to remember to make note of and then decide whether you want to, uh, take the case or, or refer it out. Okay. Well, if someone comes to you with a judgment in hand, uh, the very first thing you want to do is make sure that it is a good judgment. Make sure that it is a final and appealable judgment order. Uh, if it's not, you are facing uh, more work. Uh, so keep that in mind in accepting the case. If it is not a final judgment order, um, you've also got to make sure uh, to mail a copy of the judgment order to the debtor. Uh, you should uh, record it the memorandum of judgment in the county of the debtor's residence so that you can effectuate the judgment lien for your client. 
uh, you should mine your file and have your client mine their file for any asset information uh, regarding the judgment debtor. Uh, in addition, you know, make a phone call. Find out if the debtor is still in business. Uh, and don't forget about the Internet. There is a wealth of information out there uh, that can be found on these different uh, judgment debtors and their businesses. Um, make demand on the debtor. Don't forget that step. Uh, sometimes the phone call is all it takes. Uh, if it doesn't work, though, you're going to need to determine what judicial procedures you're going to use. Uh, more likely than not, you're going to issue at least one citation to discover assets. Um, and if you do that, uh, make sure you get the documents uh, that you need uh, in addition to conducting the citation examination. Uh, don't forget to renew the citation after six months or it will ex the lien will expire. And don't forget to renew your judgment. Um, every seven years. And I guess before you go into court, I would say make sure you know what you're doing. Um, the number of judgments uh, out there today is just extraordinary, and the courts are just overwhelmed. So the court clerks uh, just don't have the time to walk uh, attorneys through every step that they need to do. So do your homework before you go into court. You know, a good place to start, of course, is the, the statute. Uh, go to the statute. If uh, you still have questions, feel free to give me a call. Um, but at least have some idea of what you're doing before you go into court because the judge is going to lose patience with you and the court clerks uh, are just overwhelmed uh, by the number of, of cases that they're dealing with. And I would say lastly, be patient. Uh, you didn't get your judgment overnight. You're not going to likely get paid on it in a day either. So make sure that you and your client are on the same page and understand uh, that post-judgment enforcement uh, can take a little bit of time. All right. Thank you, Tamara Pollan, for all your wonderful advice and information. Again, Tamara Pollan from Teller, Levin, and Silver Trust here in downtown Chicago. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, contact information again? Uh, Tamara Pollan, uh, Teller, Levitt, and Silver Trust, 312-948-4907 is my number. All right. Thank you so much. And also thank you to our listeners uh, for tuning into this episode of Law Talk Radio, brought to you by ProServe PR Marketing, and with the support from Chris McCarthy from Northwestern Mutual. Chris McCarthy provides individuals and business owners with expert guidance and exclusive access to Northwestern Mutual's life and disability insurance policies, the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Law Talk Radio episodes are programmed to entertain and bring our legal industry professionals, consumers, and guests the tips, tools, and news they can use to be better informed practitioners and consumers. With guests and listeners located from coast to coast, we appreciate the opportunity to use this socially networked radio program to bring people together and share collective intelligence. Again, this is Nick Augustine for Law Talk Radio, and as always, I thank you for your time. <laughs>